you will, open your Bible now. Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in the book of Nahum next week to wrap up our study. But this morning, we are wrapping up our, uh, our communion study. If you haven't been with us, know that we have taken the year 2015 to try to struck to to go through the seven churches of Revelation. Part of the book of Revelation is not just to tell us about the future in the sense of telling us the unveiling of the coming judgment and how eternity starts, but it was a reminder to the church that there are expectations that God is looking for certain traits and characteristics in the believers and so seven letters went out to seven churches in what we understand as modern-day Turkey. And when we look at these churches, every one of them had different messages. And we have been using these as a basis to challenge us to get us ready for communion. We're going to have communion at the end of the service again today. And the idea in the study has been if Jesus who is the one that is making these evaluations. We're not going to go into that detail again today, but it is him that is the one that will be described in the beginning verses. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, but start in Revelation 2, verse 1, and just remind ourselves, you know, these evaluations are giving sometimes commendations, and, and then they're, sometimes they're condemning, but we need to be aware that Jesus is expecting <coughs> us to perform. And so you had in verse 1 of chapter 2 to the angel of the church in Ephesus, you had a church that was doing many good things right, but you look at verse 4, he says, but I have this against you, that you left your love at first. And we don't want to be a church that leaves its passion for God and its passion for other people. The way that they started with their Christianity was intense, and it's waned, and that's not acceptable, just like it's not acceptable in a marriage. It takes work. It takes effort. Verse 8, the church at Smyrna is addressed. Verse 10, they are told not to fear what they are about to suffer. They were a suffering church, suffering church and we studied the traits of what someone with a strong faith looks like, how they face persecution, and we wanted to have those traits. Verse 12, the church at Pergamum, you look at them, and then in verse 14, it says, but the, I have a few things against you, because you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And what they were into is they were into compromising. They were compromising their practices, and we did a detailed study on that. We don't want to be people who give in to worldly activities, sin, and say, well, it's okay. You know, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven, and everything's going to be okay. No, God does look at what we do with our lives doesn't lose our salvation but it's indicative of the fact that god is upset if we are a compromising and and a church that's not living holy lives and then you look at verse 18 to the church in thyatira and they are told in verse 20 this i have against you that you tolerate the woman jezebel and we talked about how not only were you know we saw the previous church was dealing with compromise but now they're compromising with paganism and pagan practices Religious practices that are not driven by God. That's what this church was into. And we didn't want to be like them. We jumped down to Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1. The church of Sardis write, um, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. 
And here's a church that was filled with um, unsaved people. There were still some saved, and they were told to strengthen the things that remain. And that was a fantastic study for me because it was a reminder that at the heart of what drives a church is doctrine, is the word of God. And if those things are kindled and promoted, a church comes alive. Verse 7, the church of Philadelphia was addressed in, in verse 8. We're told that they were a faithful church. I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door, verse 8 says, which no one can shut. They had a little power. They were a small church, but they were a faithful church. And how we so much want to be like the church at Philadelphia. Well, now we come to the church at Laodicea. Look at verse 14. This is our study today. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this, verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so, that you are, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me verse 21 he overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on the throne as I also overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He was an ear, let him hear what he, what he says to, this, to the churches, or the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> that was the universal line at the end of every one of these seven evaluations, that these were timeless and applicable even today. Here's the thing, Jesus is going to spit this church out because they are people that are unsaved. We're going to go into the details and this is even worse than the Sardis church. And you say, well, how could a church be filled with unsaved people? Well, the reality of it is, is when you study the Old Testament, at times God looked at the entire group, the entire group of the people of, of Israel and studied Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And you see that there are exhortations like even in 2 Kings chapter 17, where God is saying, basically, you guys, you're under judgment. You're not believing. And when we come into the New Testament here quickly, just turn to 1 Corinthians 10. You can see that God gives a description of Israel, the nation, as the apostle Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 10, New Testament book, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. And he says to the church in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be without knowledge, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. And he's talking about from the spiritual standpoint of the Jewish family, the Jewish nation, and all were baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And he's talking about how Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, that baptism isn't a water baptism, it's the immersion into his teaching and his leadership. And all ate the same spiritual food, verse 3 said, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Christ was leading them. Okay, we believe that was an old, in the Old Testament, it was a theopony, a, a manifestation. Christ manifests himself amazingly in the clouds and in that fire. And 
verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And goes on to basically describe the judgment that these people were under and how they were basically saved. And so the warning is, don't be someone that comes to church and thinks just because you fill a pew or a seat or that you are someone that's automatically saved. And so go back to Revelation and understand it's amazing how God used this community to get across this picture. If someone can get the lights, I'm going to show you the slideshow. This is, this is um, some slides on Laodicea. Here is the Asia, modern-day Turkey, and uh, I can get up close. I can't. There's little dots here. This is, this is the circuit that the messenger from John went. He went from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. And down in this area is the city of Laodicea. And it was bordered by Hierapolis and Colossae. We know Colossae because we got the book of Colossians, okay, from there. And today, this is modern-day Turkey. And this is the Lycos Valley, and what, this, is where, this is a picture where the ruins are. There, there's a modern-day city, and I think it's Denzelik. I'm going to show you a slide here in a second. But the reason this was such a, a prominent city, and it was a wealthy city, is because this was like a, a major trade route as you went through Asia. People would travel through here. Today... These ruins are, the ruins are still there, and across the way from where the ruins are is this city. This is a, like a restaurant, um, and it's Denizili, and this is an elementary school there. Very modern, very nice town, but where the ruins are across the way is um, remnants of, of a civilization gone by. And so here... They're able to go in, they do the digs, and this is like a street, and then you've got some of the columns. It's a fascinating place to think that the people who received this letter were walking up and down these streets. And here's an auditorium that they were able to find. What I find it was so fascinating is like sometimes you read the Bible, you think these people are like so old or archaic and they weren't advanced. I mean, they put in, you know, an auditorium and seats and obviously the roads and and, um, and they had homes and structures, and, you know, obviously 2,000 years later, there are still some remnants that, that they held up pretty well. And this is a road that is still out there. Um, here is, over by the main city where it is today, is like water that's coming out of, uh, out of the mountainside. And what you need to understand, what, what plays so critical in our study is that obviously every community needs water. And I tell you, this, seeing these remnants is really just, it blows me away because if you can see, they're like, these are like pipelines. And Hierapolis, I can remember by the H, had really hot water. Colossae had a lot more springs that were feeding this area, and they were cold water. And so this community needed water, and so they had a pretty in-depth aqueduct system. And I just think, wow, that's absolutely amazing. I can't, I don't know how in the world they manufactured this to be able to 
developed this to travel the lengths that it did and that everybody didn't get some kind of disease, didn't get killed. And um, this, I would think, it looks like to me like it's a big anthill, but this is a water tower. This was like a water, where the water was collected. Okay, and that's kind of stood the test of time. And if you can see back here, and I think these are some more of those aqueducts where, you know, they were bringing these things from long distances. I, I looked at this, I couldn't tell exactly what this is, but this is one of those, this is one of those um, aqueducts that was coming. But what was so interesting about this is it's calcified. And the article that was attached to this picture talked about the fact that the engineers knew that their water was becoming calcified and they designed almost like manhole covers that we would understand as manhole, something like manhole covers, so that their workers could go in on a regular basis and clean these things out. I thought, wow, isn't that something? I mean, I'm looking at these people as, you know, old country bumpkins or something like that, and they've developed a really, you know, neat system. And you know, I look at this and... And here's a remnant of it. You, this, I say to myself, this must have been really something elaborate, okay? And this is from the um, subsequent centuries. It's a, it's a stone that had a, looks like a cross on all four sides, and they think it was part of a baptismal, a baptismal that a church was using at Laodicea, okay? And... Obviously, today, that church is no longer there, as well as the community that lived at Laodicea. So we can get the lights. That was our last slide. And when you understand, when you understand that this was a community that water was so critical and the type of water that they got, we'll, we'll explain it more, you'll see how ingenious it is as God had these seven churches that this is the final church and this is the final message. And... It's dealing with, if you're visiting with us today, we got sermon notes, pull those out. It says, warning, you better be saved. Because Jesus is giving a warning to the church, make sure you're genuinely born again. You're a Christian, you're a believer, whatever synonym you want to use. And so I have two questions to ask as we get started. And write down the answer, or mentally tell your answer, you don't want anyone to see. Ask yourself first, first question. Do you know that you're a Christian? Are you a Christian? The answer is yes or no. And you base your answer not just on feeling. We're not going to do the in-depth study, but you base your answer on what doctrine do you hold to based on 1 John. Remember, 1 John chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 deal with the fact that believers know truth. Jesus is God and man who died on the cross, who, um, who rose again on the third day. And by faith alone, you've received that. And when you've received that, it's transformed your life so that you are born again. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he doesn't go into heaven. You know this when you look at your life, you say, I'm different. Because I see love in my life now and I see obedience in my life. These are things that are in my life and I have a passion for God's word and I have a passion to tell other people the message. Are you a believer, yes or no? If you say no, then got to come to faith but if you say yes the second question is applicable to you are you zealous for god passionate intense and the answer is yes or no again not so much i want to put you in a scale like oh one to ten like i, I feel like i'm a 
like I'm turning up the oven at my house or the stovetop and I'm like, you know, I've got 10 degrees and I can put it up to an eight. I'm an eight. But just more so, yes or no. I am hot for God. I'm not hot for God. And, and put that answer down. And I want you to think about that a lot as we go through this text. So let's pick it up, fill in the blank with the word, the examiner you cannot avoid. The examiner you cannot avoid. You see, verse 14, to the angel, the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this. And what we have here is a description of Jesus, and he's the one who's giving this evaluation. He's the one that's giving the examination. And an examinator is the one that does the, does the review. And it's one of the strongest descriptions you have throughout these seven evaluations. And I put on your notes there three descriptions here. First of all, he's the final word. He is the amen. You know, we go to finish a prayer. We say amen. Maybe we don't always know what it means. It means that I agree. It's like the final word. It's let it be so. And so by putting it, by Jesus calling himself, it's very similar. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Jesus says, I am the word. Jesus is saying, I, I am the amen. And, you know, sometimes you'll see a picture of people, maybe some type of movie or TV show will be having an examination of a person standing before God as whether they're going to go into heaven or hell. And the person's like arguing, like, here's my case. This is what my case is, and this is why I should go in. And, you know, as if when we stand before God, we are going to be able to present a case and somehow talk God out of it. We've got to remember, he's the final word. He's the amen. There's no one's going to be able to say anything else. When his final decision comes down, it is the final decision. Look at the second thing. It says, the faithful and true witness. Faithful, it's, he's dependable and he's true. He, he sees everything. He knows everything. There's no secrets with him. You know, you have an opportunity to present things to the world that's around you and people think that you're a believer. You think that you're someone that is spiritual. When the reality of it is your heart rages against God, God knows it's raging. So he is faithful and true. There's not going to be like a misrepresentation. It's that we got a wrong picture. We're like in a sporting event and the ref misses the call because maybe the ref didn't see it right. Well, the reality of it is God sees everything perfectly. He is the faithful and true, accurate witness. Third description, he's the chief or the beginning of creation of God. And fill in the, well, it, note that it's, he's the all-powerful creator and he is the standard. Um, the idea, some people look at this as he's the beginning of creation in the sense that he is the one who participated in creation. And we know that is true of Jesus. Passages like Hebrews chapter 1 teach us that Jesus participated in creation with God the Father. But the idea, too, of him being the chief or the beginning of creation is that he is the epitome of all creation. He's the, he is the, he's the top of all creation. He's the standard. And Jesus is the one we will have to measure up to. And all of us will fall short. But if we believe in him, he becomes our representative to get us into heaven. So therefore, we need to understand that his standard is what we have to have to get into heaven. 
This is an examination that you cannot avoid. And this examiner is going to be able to see everything and know everything. So famous old quote, many of you have heard this before. It's from Abraham Lincoln. You can fool all of the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. And sometimes I think about that and I say, what did that just say? <laughs> but the reality of it is, is that I know that sometimes people get fooled and sometimes people get a wrong perception. What God is saying is, I don't get fooled. And that should put fear in all of us. But as a believer, if you're genuine and you're coming to God and, you know, you could be struggling with all kinds of sin. You, you could be somebody that sometimes thinks, you know, I know that I'm struggling with walking the Christian life the way I want to. But, it, you know, I confess it and I'm real. I'm saying, God, I, I hate my sin and I want to do right. Remember, 1 John teaches that believers confess their sin. So the reality here is that, is that I know that even if I'm struggling with sin... If I'm honest with God, at least I'm not playing a game. But please, if, if you're even playing that game secretly, privately, be warned. You cannot fool God anytime. God knows everything that's going on. Well, here's the evaluation you want to avoid. Because this is where it starts to get really, really tough. So fill in the blank with the word evaluation. Because from verses 15 to 20, we get a very detailed evaluation. And he says, I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And, and, and this is something you've got to understand. He's not saying that being cold is wrong. Being cold in the sense of, of being intense is what is appropriate. God looked at this situation, and remember I said you, you had Hierapolis that was above Laodicea, and then you had Colossae that was so, uh, south. They got their water from each place. And, and so when the water came from Hierapolis and it was hot, sometimes by the time it got there, it was tepid. And do you ever go to drink water and it's just not good and you just want to spit it out? That was the problem. Here you had this great city and its great location, great location, trade route, very popular. We're going to see there were some thriving businesses there, but you have a water problem. And these people put a lot of work and a lot of investment in their, in their, their water ducts, but they still had problems. They didn't have everything that we had today. And so they ended up with sometimes water that wasn't as hot as it should be or as cold as it should be. And both of them lost their intensity. And so the people at Laodicea would say, boy, we got that. We sure know what it's like to drink water that should have been cold or needing to take a bath or needing to um, maybe, I don't know if they used that water for hot tea. I don't know. But something was just too, too tepid. We, you can see very graphic. Like, I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to throw you out of my mouth. And, you know, we talk about, you know, watching somebody spit today. It's sometimes, like, really gross. Why would Jesus say this? This is God who's saying this. And he's trying to paint the picture. These people, I'm, I'm rejecting you. And the Bible talks about the fact, you know, Jesus has talked about on Judgment Day in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to get there in our scripture reading um, for the pastor prayer time soon, where Jesus says, 
you know, get away from me. I never knew you. And, and so that's the essence of what he was communicating to these people. And you look at verse 17. He goes, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and, do not, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. These people were people that could relate to this too because, because this was a very wealthy area. These people knew wealth. And one of the things that we know, especially around with, with spirituality, because it's taken advantage today, is that people often think if you're wealthy, you're blessed. That's why the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine is so prominent. Because people think that if you are wealthy, you are being blessed by God. And that's not true. And, and they had a false perception thinking, look at we're in this rich community. We've got, a, we've got wonderful buildings, and we, you know, we've got um, a location that's super. It's on the trade routes. People are coming by. We've got this very prominent church. And he says, you say that I'm rich, and I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. We've got it all together. And maybe this is like a wealthy church, a large church today might say. We've really got it going. We've got everything on our side. But you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. All of those are descriptions that God have, has used throughout the Bible to describe people that are unsaved. And so being clear, this isn't people just that are in sin in the sense of, as we talk about carnal Christians. These are people that are unsaved, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. And this is what he tells them to do. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. What do you mean buy gold? Well, this is the picture in Scripture that God often talks about by getting true wealth from him. Remember, 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about our faith being more precious than gold. So here he says, I want you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. All right, well, how do I do that? How can I become rich? And, and, and then he talks about getting these white garments. Well, we understand that often people are portrayed in clean garments clean garments that are indicative of their spirituality so you want to be you want to have these clean garments so that you can go into heaven and then the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed so again you're being unsaved unproperly dressed um, would not be revealed and then the end of it is that he says and you can buy this eye salve that would give you sight, which was interesting because one of the things that I, I didn't find a picture for is that Laodicea was well known for having a special eye salve that cured a lot of people. And so Jesus is saying, you can have this. And people there would say, well, my goodness, people from all over the world are coming to get our eye salve. We understand the significance of this. What do I have to do? Well, the instruction is, I advise you to buy from me gold. How do I buy that? Well, here is a great principle. Scripture interprets Scripture. Look at Isaiah 55. Go back in your Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. Famous passage as Isaiah is talking about the coming Messiah and, 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 and the coming um, deliverance that God is going to bring. And, you know, from Isaiah 40 on, you're talking about the Messiah. And just picking out one passage, Isaiah 55, 
Isaiah cries out in verse 1, Isaiah 55, Old Testament book, middle of your Bibles, Isaiah 55, verse 1, says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Well, what waters? Well, God often portrays himself as you come and you drink of God. You know, John chapter 7, the Holy Spirit comes in the believer and fills them up with water so you never have to drink. So everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. All right? Come, buy, and eat. What do you mean? How can I buy something if I have no money? You know, God, you don't understand commerce. You need to go to Economics 101. You, you know, you need money to buy things. You want me to buy something and I have no money? And what am, you know, what am I buying? I'm buying wine and milk without money and without cost. Well, it's the things that sustain life. Verse 2. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Well, he's talking about look at your life, examine your life. When I asked you before, are you zealous for God? A believer is zealous for God and, and God is their passion. He is their pursuit. It is not just for elite Christians and Old Testament saints as well. But here is the answer. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Listen. The idea here is listen, incline your ear, lean on him. In essence, have faith. Faith in trusting God and what he's communicated, trust in his promises. So when he says come by and eat, the scripture explains. He's saying trust me. Find your sustenance in me. Believe in me. And that's what he was telling the church at Laodicea. So go back then and understand as we continue on. This evaluation starts with you're lukewarm and you're going to be spit out. It goes into you're deceived about your wealth and need to buy from Jesus so that you buy that gold and you get the garment and you get the eye salve and you're no longer wretched and poor. And the words for poor is like you're absolutely destitute. And that's where the unsaved are. There's nothing of wealth they have that God says, boy, I need you. Because the believer understands we need God. We need everything from him. But you need to fill in the blank with that third point there with the word zealous. You need to be zealous about your Christian walk because you are not now. And that's where this church was when he says for these people, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You see the word zealous there? It means to be intense. Now, some people will say, wait a second. Those whom I love, I reprove. Aren't, isn't that the church? Isn't that, isn't that believers? Well, God loves the world. First, I mean, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There is a truth that God loves the elect and God loves the church. But some people, you need to understand, God loves the world too. He loves the unbeliever. He's provided salvation for them. And so I believe in this context, he's, he is showing us that God does love the unbeliever. But God will judge the unbeliever as well. So those whom I love, I reprove. God loves humanity. God so loved the world. God did love the world. And so he says, be zealous and repent. And I believe this is a call to salvation, especially with, with the verse that follows. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. When he says, be zealous and repent, the, both of those are commands. 
Like, repent, we all understand. Turn around, turn from your sin, go a new way. But here's the thing. He's asking us to be zealous as if this is the description of the normal Christian life. And, and that, that's my thing is that I've been a believer now 25 years and people have often said, you know, you become a believer. You're, you know, you're, oh, he's a young believer. He's always going to Bible study. He's always praying. He's always reading his Bible. That'll wane. Well, the reality of it is I want to tell everybody here that has not waned in me. That has not waned. That has not died down. And my, my hope and my passion is that it never will because God is sustaining me and he'll sustain you. And, and, and you need to be zealous. Christianity has to be intense in your life. We live in a world that's going to constantly pull us down and think that the, that the norm of the way they live is the, is the right way. But their way is a lie. And I remember talking to one of our partners in my CPA firm, and he was talking about, you know, you can't live with your Christianity on your shoulder. And basically he was saying, you can't live with your Christianity out and put it into practice. And we don't want to see your Christianity. Of course he didn't want to see my Christianity because it was a convicting truth to him that he's unsaved and he's not living up to God's standard. So the world's going to tell you not to be zealous. But I'm telling you, even though this is directed as a call to unbelievers to be zealous, we, must, we can learn from this as believers. And we can say, I need to be zealous because this is the expectation of what a believer needs to be. Fill in the blank. You need to let Jesus in your life. One of the greatest verses in the Bible, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The word for dine speaks of intimacy. Now, there are three major views of this. That number one, he's talking to the church, let me in. Number two, he's talking to an unbeliever. Or number three, he is... Um, so number one, he's talking to the saved church. Number two, he's talking to unbelievers. Or number three, he's just talking to the church in general of unsaved people, the, the unsaved people at the church, so corporately. And I think the difference between views two and three are un, you know, indistinguishable. I do think he is saying to the unbeliever here, I am knocking and God is gracious. And how many of us know unbelievers where God continually does things that show his reality, bring truth to them? And I believe this is God's graciousness and will go against their judgment. I was constantly working to wake you up, to come into your life, to get involved with you, but you continually resisted. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I'll have a relationship with you. This is, one of the, again, one of those passages that help teach us that Christianity is a relationship and not just some formal religious rite that we go through. And when I say, are you born again? There, everyone who's born again knows that, wow, there's been a rebirth in me and there's a reality that I know God and God knows me. I have this intimacy with him. So the unbeliever, if you would say today, I don't have this, then I'd say, let him into your life repent, turn, become someone that places your faith in Jesus Christ. Fill in the blank, lastly, point 3A with the word enormous. Enormous is spelled E-N-O-R-M-O-U-S. Big! Look at verses 21 and 22. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne 
and I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's this invite. He wasn't here. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What God is saying here is that believers in this day and age get a ruling and reigning opportunity with God. That's mind-boggling. This is an incentive. We're not just going to be peons for all eternity, which God could have done. He had every legal right. But he is allowing us somehow, some way, as we've studied in other passages, to have a ruling and reigning opportunity. I mean, when he says in verse 21, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, we will have a prominent position in the eternal city. As God may fill up the entire world, and we may watch some most, you know, as God fills up the entire universe, as people are filling up the universe that he made, as we have a rebirth of, the, of creation with the new heavens and the new earth, people who are believers will perhaps stand as testimony for all the ages as we are able to say, look, if God led us in our sinful state, this is the pain and this is the hurt that it would have created. We will have some special voice. Incredible that God is letting us have that. He wants us to see this is a reward. He dangles that in front of people and says in verse 21, if you are an overcomer, if you're a victor, if you win at life, you can have this. So therefore, be zealous and repent. So here, look at the examination you cannot avoid. The ex- excuse me, the examiner you cannot avoid. The evaluation you want to avoid. And then the enormous incentive you want to strive for. And so the question comes again, are you somebody that's saved? Yes or no? If you said yes, then you should be zealous. And if you need to turn around and, and start putting more flames on that fire, don't use any excuse. Oh, I'm in junior high. I'm in high school. I'm in college. I, I, I'm just at the start of my life. I'm at the middle age of my life. I'm, uh, I'm at the end of my life. Every one of us can have an excuse why we're not zealous for God. It is something that everyone who's a believer The expectation is there. And so if you're not saved, then I tell you, please, God stands at the door and knocks. He wants to come into your life. He knows that you're a sinner. He knows everything that you've done in secret. You can't hide anything from him. You need to acknowledge that and say, I need you in my life. I need you to pay the penalty for my sin. I need you to provide grace for me. I need you to be my Lord. I need you to be my King. I need you to be my Savior. Embrace Him because He loves you. God does love the unbeliever and He wants to come into your life. And so I tell you, believe in Him and He will. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we get ready for communion that in each and every one of us there is the heart and the thought that we truly are born again. And if anyone doesn't know if they're born again, it doesn't matter how long they've attended this church or any church, that they would recognize how they need you in their life. They need that relationship that's live and vibrant and exciting and which drives our zealousness, our passion. And God, I would hope that every person here would recognize the answer to the question, are you zealous or not, would ha- has to be yes. And that every believer in here, if they would say, 
I'm partially zealous would say that is unacceptable. Help us all, God, to be people who could say we are zealous for you. And I ask that every, every individual in this room would be zealous for you. Because it's good and it's great and it's strong and it's powerful and it's loving and it's kind and it's gracious and it's filled with joy and it's filled with peace and all of this is worth, worth leaving any sin for. And the zealousness is not that we become madcap, crazy, lunatic, fundamentalist <coughs> individuals. But we become people that are born again and so firmly stationed in life. We thank you, God, for that. We thank you for the way zealousness plays itself out. In Jesus' name, amen.